Is queer money different than straight money? This is a question we're often asked and one that we're answering on today's episode of the aptly named Queer Money. Today we're joined by author and money pro Bryn Conroy of Femme Frugality and Nicole Perry, a transgender woman of color. Bryn recently published the Feminist Financial Handbook and in it Bryn featured Nicole to show the differences between the heteronormative, cisnormative experience in personal finance and that of transgender people. As cis gay white men, this was completely eye-opening for David and me and we know that you'll get a lot out of it. But before we get started, we want to make sure that you know that this episode of Queer Money is being brought to you by the Debt Free Guys Budget Buster Bundle. Many of you have told us that your tired, static budgets simply aren't working, that they're too restrictive, and that they're antiquated. The Budget Buster Bundle is a four-step solution to creating a dynamic budget that works with you, not against you, and puts you on a plan you can actually live with. The Budget Buster Bundle will be available starting Sunday, February 17th. So for more information, go to debtfreeguys.com forward slash budget buster. Now, on with the show. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. So welcome, Bryn Conroy and Nicole Lynn Perry to the Queer Money Podcast. We're excited to have you. Glad to be here. Great, great. So Bryn, please tell us a little bit about your book, what it's about, and why you wrote it. Yes, I wrote the Feminist Financial Handbook. It is about, obviously, feminist money. Um, It looks at money, though, from an intersectional feminist perspective. So it's looking not just at like how your money is affected because you're a woman, but also how your money is affected based on other oppressive systems that you might face, such as racism or ethnocentrism or heteronormativity or cisnormativity. Um, and so it looks it looks at kind of all of those things and it tries to offer some productive workarounds where they exist. And then where they don't exist, it tries to kind of expose those issues to a larger audience so that hopefully we can start some larger conversations and make some cultural changes. Gotcha. So, and it's probably um, insinuated, but what motivated you to write the book? You know, I had a publisher approach me at the end of last year, and I am incredibly passionate about this field, but I wasn't sure if I was if if it was the smartest move mm-hmm. uh it's a lot of time to write a book mm-hmm. um which is no issue i like working hard and everything that's something that i do frequently but there's not necessarily i wasn't sure if i'd be able to help it find the right audience and i also knew that it could not be a book about me or my voice i am a white straight presenting woman and i I, I really wasn't. Sh- so I, I talked to some of my colleagues and I decided that we could indeed find an audience for it. There was actually a need for it and that I would be comfortable doing it by interviewing people like Nicole and really highlighting their stories and them at the center of the book. Right. And just for context to our audience, Nicole Lynn Perry, or do you go by Nikki, Nicole? <laughs> Either one is fine. I use both of them at Nikki, I use more so to get people. It's where they feel more comfortable around me, but use Nicole or Nikki. Either one is fine. All right, great. So just for context to our audience, Nikki is one of the subjects of Bryn's book. Bryn has a whole section in it about heteronormativity and cisnormativity, and Nikki provides some context about uh, her lived experiences struggling with or overcoming those particular challenges. You know, and... I will say I appreciate the the fact that you have taken this topic 
especially this just this whole idea of, of uh, feminine finance because they're I think it's projected that 70% of the US of US wealth will be in the hands of women within the next 20 to 30 years and that obviously is because you know generationally money is being passed down but women in general live longer than men so there's going to be this gravitation of money more towards women in the in our country especially and if we don't do something to help women understand and use it wisely, then it could be a, a problem. Money could be even more so of a problem for the future of our country. Absolutely. And I think that the biggest thing with um, women feel uh, comfortable with their money and their money management is to really just instill that confidence. I think that because we are not generally a target of uh, financial planners and people within the financial industry, we feel like maybe things are more complex than they actually are. We might feel inadequate when really when we look at things like investing, women have far less confidence but are much better investors when we actually get into the game. So I think that a large part of this is just a confidence issue rather than an ability issue. Absolutely. Yeah. I would totally agree with that. Uh, you know, I think that one of the things that we took away from a uh, women in Diversity Symposium that John and I have attended twice at the University of Akron is that idea that it money is not difficult. It's it, it does take work. It's not it's not easy, but it's also not difficult. Anyone can understand the math if you know how to add and subtract. You can understand the math of money, right? So it is something that everyone can learn, and it's important, as you said, because of the confidence level that it builds within us, the more confident we are with our money, the more confident we can become because we're making smarter decisions. Right. And as we know, in order to be it, we need to see it. And very often women and the LGBT community doesn't see, we don't see ourselves in financial services. We don't see ourselves in their commercials or the collateral. Um, so hopefully uh, part of what Bryn's doing and what the Deaf Free Guys are doing will hopefully help change some of that. So just so that we're all playing on uh, the same field, Bryn, would you mind defining both heteronormativity and cis-normativity for us and our audience, please? Sure. So my understanding of them, and anybody on this podcast is more qualified to talk about this <laughs> than I am, but my understanding of these concepts is they are the damaging assumption that everybody, in the case of heteronormativity, is straight, or in the case of cis-normativity, is the gender that they were assigned at birth. And when we make those assumptions, we build a system that disenfranchises and puts a lot of disadvantages in front of people who are not heterosexual or who are not cisgender. Got you. And so, Nikki, would you, you have more of an experience than, than David and I do. Would you agree or edit those definitions? I would agree with those definitions. It's also one of those to where not for cis-normativity, it's also where if you do have a trans person, that all you do is, if, for example, and I hate to use this word because of the connotations that it has with it, but if a trans person passes, quote-unquote, then there's really assumed sometimes to be cis 
when the whole thing is being trans, even though there are people who look at it with negativity as well as with positivity, the thing is us as trans people being trans is part of our identity. It is who we are. It's something that no matter what goes on, it's something that we can't change about ourselves. Although I know some uh, some trans women, for example, who say, I'm just a woman and don't have to be trans to their definition, that doesn't mean that all trans people feel the same way. Right. Yeah, I, I think that this is, you know, being a, a cis white man, it does open my eyes, but I think this opens the eyes up to a lot of people to this idea that what we see, especially what we see with our eyes, is is not always the reality. Uh, it's not what it's not how we should define things. Uh, and so, when we see someone that we assume we may assume to be male or female, we may assume to be straight or gay, that we need to maybe check ourselves and and potentially leave those assumptions aside. Agreed. It's. Because besides the standard or quote-unquote standard default of binary, you also have people who are non-binary. And although if you look at them, they may appear to be male or trans male, cis male or trans female, just because one looks like they're part of the binary doesn't always mean that they are part of the binary. They may dress a certain way because non-binary does not always mean androgynous. One of uh, the partners in one of my polycules, as a matter of fact, she is non-binary him, which means that although she will accept the use of she, her pronouns, she will also use they, them pronouns and identifies as non-binary. Yeah. I think it's very interesting that the topic that we're we're covering, John and I were chatting about this a little bit last night. We have uh, millions of years of evolution of our brains, and our brains have been kind of trained with this idea of of looking at patterns, looking at uh, the outward appearance of things because many times that kept us safe, right? We didn't eat this particular type of berry because we knew it might be poisonous. We ran or climbed a tree when we saw that particular kind of animal because it, that animal may be dangerous and could kill us or vice versa. It could be the type of animal that someone would, would be able to hunt and provide food. Our brains are evolving and we're, not, we're now at the point with evolution of our brains that we can leave some of those evolutionary traits behind and say, I'm going to understand even more, instead of saying it's, not, it's no longer black and white. It's I need to understand more before I can make a judgment or a, a make the, enter the scenario with full understanding. I also think, and anybody correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I, I think that the evolution may be more cultural than biological. I personally feel and understand the situation to be like, uh, this is all biological. This has probably existed forever. And it's just something we are culturally coming to accept now because cisnormativity has been the 
norm. The mm-hmm. people who have been in power of our cultures and our societies for a very long time um, have exercised heteronormativity and cisnormativity. Um, and now we're at a point where I think that, thank God, our cultures are evolving where we accept everybody <laughs> regardless of, well, yeah. I mean, we I don't know. I hope we're headed that way anymore. But <laughs> yes, we are. We will say that we are. And I, I agree with you. I said to David last night, you know, our entire foundation, the entire structure of our economy, everything about our country and the world for the most part has been in a cis binary world. Right. We've got it. Everything's been structured that way. So we're at a point in, in our culture um, that we're now starting to say, this doesn't necessarily work for everyone. Let's come up with something that does is more inclusive of everyone. And to that point, then, Brynn, I would ask you, what was it about Nicole's story that compelled you to include her story in your book? Definitely. So I had been following Nicole on Twitter and <laughs> she just she just had an amazing an amazing story and just this amazing strength about her where um, she was going through some stuff and some hard times. And I, again, I will let her speak to that. I I do not want to get too deep into that myself. Um, But I, I was just really impressed by her resilience and her willingness to speak out even in hard circumstances where I think a lot of us would shut down and kind of, maybe move more into ourselves, whereas she was going out and not just speaking up for herself, but for her entire community. And I was really impressed and I wanted to hear more of her story. And she was super gracious and let me share that story um, in the book. Perfect. Well, that that's a great segue. <laughs> Nicole, would you mind giving our listeners a little bit about who you are and, and your background, please? Sure. I'm uh, originally born and raised in Dallas. And uh, I actually joined the on the United States Marine Corps in 2008, whenever I was 19, and about a year after that is whenever I also got married. And while I was in the Marine Corps, especially around the last year that I was on active duty, that I started realizing who I was, and by real, what I mean by realizing who I was, as in realizing that, yes, I am actually transgender. And although I had known before then that there was something different, I had known growing up that that it was that. I just didn't have the words for it. So, and not only not having the words, but also not knowing who I could talk to led it to where I didn't tell anyone except for maybe a couple of people who I trusted. And even then, I was still worried that if I told someone, somehow my parents would find out and then things would go from bad to worse. So then after I got out of the Marine Corps and I got out with an honorable discharge, there was no separation due to my transition. After I got out of the Marine Corps, I moved back to Texas with my now ex-wife. And that was whenever I started finding out what the process would be to come out as myself, to be myself visibly. And unfortunately, at the same time I was finding this out, was also at the same time that my ex and her family started uh, talking to her and started talking to me. And they would, because of how she felt and because of how they felt, 
we actually ended up divorcing like about two years after uh, I got out of the military. And it was once we divorced that I started my transition in earnest. And from there, I started working on changing my name and gender marker, trying to find a job first as myself, then having to hide myself, and then once again as myself. But at the same time that I was working, it was also one of those to where I was doing a lot of activism within the community, not just within Dallas, but also within the state of Texas. And also for the fact that I'm also a trans veteran. And at the time that I started my activism, there, there had been rumbles about open service for trans people, but there hadn't been anything set in stone just yet. And then finally in 2016, open service was announced, but then at the same time it was announced, later on, uh, Trump became president, and a lot of the things we thought we had set in stone started looking like they would be rolled back especially in Texas. So then we had uh, state senators and state representatives that were looking at passing quote-unquote bathroom bills. And unfortunately, because of the fact that I had left a job previously, I had no employment at the time. So my job, quote-unquote, basically became activism and while I was doing all of my activism, I started finding finding more and more people across the country, including mine here in Washington. And it turns out where even though none of the bathroom bills passed, it was one of, I would I wanted to be somewhere where I could be safe. So then I moved to Washington. Originally I lived down in Tacoma, which is where the story ends in the book. But now I actually live in Seattle City Limits, and I'm actually employed now by JCPenney. Different, somewhat of a different position than what I was originally doing at Amazon. But now, although there are still challenges I do have right now, it's also one of the, there are a lot of things for me are much safer being here in Washington. Gotcha. Thank you so much for sharing all that. That's very insightful. As you're speaking, I, I just have one kind of broad question. What is life like for a transgender person in America today? Is it good? Is it okay? Is it scary? Like, what is the what is the temperature right now for for transgender people? Right now, it it's a scary time, but it also depends on where you're at. For example. And here in Seattle, I don't have to so much worry about the state or local politicians signing anything against trans people. But at the same time, because of the fact that the federal government is doing things, it's one of those where it all depends, even though in the country as a whole, it's a scary time. Your local community can help to a point make it better because knowing that, okay, I can out and I can be visible to within my community, 
so you can also make yourself known to those who are scared to come out or be visible and you can be there to help them which I had a few of self and then now I also have a few people that follow me on Twitter or are friends with me that they're not out visibly in the community but at least whenever I talk with them they know that they're able to be themselves right and so what is what is the the temperature for just your day-to-day living like interacting with people in your community whether it's at the grocery store or you know the LGBT center like in general is it is it relatively good in Washington or not so in Washington it's not that bad so far I've actually had I've had was open for if people just look at me for the most I or they assume I'm I'm a woman. And the good thing about that also is the fact I don't even though I don't have anything that directly says I am trans on my on my body to a point I actually do also because of the fact that I have two risk on I wear no matter where I go, one of which is from last year during the fight for the bath against the bathroom bill in Texas, and then another one is for a uh, LGBTQ youth house here in Seattle. So although none of them directly say that I am trans, it also lets people know that hey, yes, I am part of the LGBTQ or as some people call it, the rainbow community. Maybe you don't know exactly which part of it I am. I am part of the community, and if you would, if you do feel scared or you are and the looking to talk to, I'm here for you. Thank you, Nicole. You know, I I guess I have a, a one other question that may help some individuals in our audience. When you look at um, your whole process when you exited the military and you started to become comfortable with being your authentic self what kinds of changes what kinds of things did you know or did you prepare for or in hindsight are things that you maybe weren't prepared for but you've had to go through that have helped you get to the point you're at today and and i think that this is this question is really coming from the point of let's help educate some more people as to what it's like for someone who decides that they want to be their authentic self and can get there. What are some of the, the major steps you've had to take? For me, one of the major steps is getting my name and gender marker changed. Unfortunately, there's no one law across the country that says if you have this done or you have that done, you can change your name and gender marker. Name changes a standard across the board for the most part for the simple fact of weddings. However, gender marker changes are a bit more complicated because, for example, in states like here in Washington, all you have to do is get signed and and paperwork filled out by your physician that says that you're you're completing the necessary treatment for transition. You fill that out, you sign it, take it to the DMV, they'll change your gender marker. Where, and then you have states like Texas where you can't, you can't fill out, you can have your doctor fill out a letter, 
but then you have to also go in front of a judge who made who grant your gender marker change, who may not. And then you've also got states like Alabama, who I was actually looked at earlier this morning, where the only way they will change gender marker on your birth certificate and on your driver's license or state ID is if you have a physician that signs a letter and says that says that you've completed a, the uh, the appropriate surgery to to complete your transition. Thing is, not every trans person can afford surgery. So for a lot of people, including me, if I was in Alabama right now, I wouldn't have been able to change my gender marker. For the fact, I have not had any kind of surgery. Interesting. So the I think that those are those are probably two big ones. And I think Bryn, your story or your sharing Nicole's story in your book really highlights how those two things can have a major impact on how someone can be integrated into the financial services system or be excluded from it. Um, I'm not sure if that's necessarily where where we want to go right now, but um, thank you, Nicole, for sharing that with us. That. So many people may have this misconception that all it takes is going down to the DMV or going to the courthouse, and it's a simple paperwork process. But you point out here that in some places, it may be that simple. And in other places, uh, you know, I, I personally have, have heard some stories or read some stories of individuals who are standing in front of a judge, and the judge asks that person to prove that they have physically had that surgery. How incredibly... Um, demeaning is that, that you have to do that. So the broad range of things that that happen in this country for someone to be able to live their authentic self really kind of highlights that it's it's not an easy process. Exactly. It's because of that, it varies across the country. And even, like I was saying, how it, with Texas, how it depends on the judge, that's just one state. And it you may have one, we have, from what I've read and heard from friends, in Travis County, which is Austin, you have judges that you go in front of them, okay, you got your letter, okay, sign off. You go to somewhere like, for example, Amarillo, you go in front of the judge, yeah, you might get your name change, but your gender mark change, not a chance. Interesting. And then that, that actually is a segue to our, our next question then. So, Nicole, would you mind providing us to what extent are some of these challenges that you've had due to trying to integrate with the banking and societal structures? Or are they, is it more based on, on, on bigotry? It's one of those, some of it is part of the banking structure. For example, where uh, there may be a trans person who may have never had a bank account and the whole thing is because they didn't have a bank account, they may have a prepaid debit card, which I actually and I have gone through this myself. And that prepaid debit card, although there's an account tied to it, there's not so much an account tied to as in a local bank that you can just go to and make a deposit. And on that prepaid debit card, all it says is valued customer or there's no specific name on the card. So whenever you may go to a restaurant or may go to a store, if that store or restaurant asks to see your ID, okay, all, 
they're trying to match a valued customer bank card to an ID that has someone's name on it. They may deny it. Oh, that doesn't have your name on it. We need something with your name on it. Yeah, I think one of the other ones that you maybe kind of highlighted a little bit in the book was the idea of of walking in somewhere where someone is going to look at your physical appearance when they're trying to judge whether or not you are the person on your ID, right? So they may look at you and your ID may not, your name or gender marker may not have changed yet, but you are living your authentic self and your appearance may be different than what's on the, the ID card. Maybe can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. On um, that one, it's as simple as uh, you go in and you may have an ID that says your birth name and birth gender, yet you're presenting as authentic self. And although, yes, there are people who have licenses from under okay, they may have had long hair or facial hair then, but now they're completely clean shaven and have short hair, but for the most, they still look, they look like just their assigned gender at birth. Whereas for trans people, we may go somewhere, have makeup on, have a wig on, have longer hair than what we did in our previous ID. And because of what's on the ID, it may be, oh, you're just trying to use your sister's ID or use your mother's ID or use some other family member's ID. Although you may be of legal age yourself as well, it may be, oh, no, you, you can, sorry, you can't buy it because you don't look like the person in the ID. Right. Yeah, so it, <laughs> a couple of points here. John had an ID for quite a while from when he was in college, actually, probably maybe 15 years later. He was uh, had long hair in the picture on his ID, but was bald <laughs> in real life and would get would get a little people would give him a hard time from time to time or make comments about it so that was most of the time in jest but what you're talking about is where someone is is i guess to a certain degree they're trying to do their job because there is potential risk there you know uh, serving alcohol to someone who's not of legal age that is kind of their job definition maybe but what you're saying is that it's even it's more difficult because of this difference in the what your appearance and what your ID shows. Exactly, it's one of those to where okay, yeah, you may be 25 in both instances, but that the simple simple fact is you don't look like the ID that you're presenting. And although some people may understand, okay, their fans or even even if they don't say it out loud, okay, they're trans, they're trying to get their ID. They may be trying to update their ID and let it go. There may be some people, okay, I, I've got to stick to the rules. You don't look like your ID. I can't sell it to you. Right. So, Nicole, would you mind sharing with our audience, what are some of the administrative steps to transitioning? Not necessarily the medical steps, but you know, if you're able to go from your assigned gender at birth and you're able to go all the way to the other end of the spectrum where you're actually able to transition and get all of the banking accounts and information in a row, what are some of those steps that you would need to take care of administratively to complete a transition? Main thing is you're getting your name and gender marker changed, and not only if it's okay. Say if it's for 
if you're in a state like Texas, then at least having that court order will be at your start. And then also making sure you update your driver's license or state ID, whichever one that you have. And, and then also updating your name with with social security. And the whole thing is with social security, they say they don't, obviously there's no marker on your social security card that says male, female, whatever. But at the same time, go ahead and let social security know that you've also updated your gender so that this way, if say they do have something in their system, they have it updated. Just basically, Start out with getting your IDs changed, and then from there, go on to your your bank, go on to, it may seem silly, but your library card. Because the thing, you may have, have may not, may only have your driver's license or may have your state ID, and you need a second form of ID. Well, there you go. You've got your library card, or you can go to like, have them print out, yes, you're a library card holder. Here's your name. Here's your address. Here's a form of a, here's something that shows, yes, your name is for me, Nicole Ann Perry, and this is their address. Even though it may not be something that's gender specific, you want to try to have as much as you can that has that has your name as well as your gender on it so that this way there's less room to assume that your your birth name or your birth gender with the social security nicole i remember you were telling me it was either you were a friend i cannot remember but that whenever the name change happened it actually created like a duplicate social security account was that i, I, I had a similar experience what ended up happening and i actually had this happen to me here in seattle was that I want to open up a bank account and I have had my social security card, had my Texas driver's license since I had just moved up to Seattle, moved up to Tacoma and I didn't have, have yet a Washington license. I'd went to the bank to open up an account and whenever I got to it, they, they, they did their research, looking up my name and whatnot. And then they told me that whenever they looked at my social security number, it's even though my social security card had the same number in the system, the social security number still had references to my birth name. So I ended up having to leave the bank, go home, grab my court order that showed I had legally changed my name from my birth name to Nicole and Perry in order for them to be able to submit, to have have my account created and say, yes, there's this social security number. And yes, although this num this name came up with this number, the name is actually this now. Interesting. You know, it, I think this kind of does maybe highlight an, an interesting point about the documentation, all of the documentation that you have to have, do you find it common that um, individuals in the trans community kind of have a, a repository, a, a place where they keep all of that information? Like, do, do some people use something like Google Docs where they have everything so that's easily accessible or some other document service that has all those legal documentation, all that legal documentation so they can be accessed really quickly? 
some people have it in their Google Docs, some people hold on to it on their person so that this way they have it readily available in case they're going somewhere like for a job interview. It's right there. They can take it with them. For example, with me, even because of the fact I haven't changed my birth certificate yet, if I can go somewhere where they ask besides for a state ID and a security card, if I go somewhere where they're asking for a birth certificate, I take my court order with me so that this way, in case they look at my birth certificate and then they look at my IDs they, and they wonder, okay, why is Nicole and Perry female on the ID, but my birth name and assigned gender at birth on my birth certificate, they can then look at court order and realize, okay, yes, I've legally changed my name and gender marker from this to Nicole and Perry female. Right. So it sounds like there's there are some tools available that can or should be used that may make things just a little bit easier. Not completely easy, but maybe a little bit easier. Exactly. It's what it's all to the living situation or to where you're it it may be easier to have it on your person. It may be easier to keep it on your computer. Me for example I've I have a copy of the court order I keep with me here in Seattle, but I also have a copy of the court order on my computer. The main, the main difference between having the one on my person and the one on my computer is that the one on my, the one that I have here at home, is actually embossed and sealed by the district, by the district clerk in Dallas County, whereas the one on my, on my computer, although it it has been scanned. You can see the imprint of the seal on the back of the last page. It would only be what most people would consider just be a photo Yeah. Yeah. So I think that anybody who's tried to open up a bank account, an investment account, knows that the cumbersome process of all the documentation you have to provide already, especially with the changes to the Patriot Act. Um, I know David and I are, are applying for 401k accounts now for the th- second or third time because... Every time we go through, they tell us to do it one way, and then it's not right, so we have to do it another way. And we're cis gay men who and have not changed our name or social security number or anything, and, and it's already cumbersome. So it's just exponentially harder for, it sounds like, the, the transgender community. What I'd like to move on to is, Brent and Nicole, I guess, on page 133 of the Feminist Financial Handbook, you list a couple of industries and locations that are amicable for transgender people to consider getting into, such as uh, the airline industry, anywhere from airline pilots to co-pilots to flight engineers, CEOs of different companies in certain locations, such as San Diego and Seattle, architectural and engineering managers in, in San Diego. Is there a common thread amongst those different industries and locations that makes them more receptive to accepting transgender people as employees? I'll throw that to Nicole, please. Um, that one, funny thing, if you ask a lot of trans women, especially and I, myself and quite a few other trans women that we're all involved some way, somehow in IT. It's one of the things that I've seen with many trans women that we're all, it may not be all of us on, on the help desk side of things, but IT is one of the biggest, one of this one I've seen 
the trend went for the fact, and I think that is for the because of the fact we we get the skills that we need to know, and the fact that most places, whenever they when they hire IT people, they don't want to let them know either <laughs> because of the fact that whenever uh, they hire those people. Okay, they're expecting them to be there whenever they update the systems, update their computer, whatnot. And they'd rather have someone who's been there for a while than have to hire someone new and uh, may know about that system, but not exactly how that company runs that system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, you know, I think kind of what you're pointing out there is that the job is a value added job. It doesn't matter who the person is or what they look like. They just in the that particular field, they want someone to be skilled, understand what needs to be done and do the job. And they could pretty much care less at what else comes with it. Exactly. Yeah. And that's like with with that list of career options, what I did for that particular section, I I don't want to make it appear as if like the airline industry or like the business industry at the CEO level is particularly transgender. I do not know. Maybe they are. Maybe they are not. But what I did to gather that data, what I, I think what Nicole told me with the IT thing, right. these jobs are so in demand, they need the work done. And they are going to pay you to do it if you have that skill set. And so what I did was I looked at the city where I talked to women um, who were in the community. And I looked at those jobs that really were in top demand. And those are the people listed. Um, that's not to say that you're necessarily going to have an easy time going any of those fields. But if you're looking for a locale that is more friendly um towards you being transgender you're going to be able to do your authentic life with a lot less friction these are within the metropolises that are currently in high demand if that makes sense yeah yeah absolutely it does um and some of our listeners might know this but david and i have recently maybe the last year or so been on a push to try to get more transgender people into financial services particularly financial planning that's the industry that we're from and we know that uh right now it's dominated by older white straight men and a lot of those older white straight men are retiring they're they're going to have to give their practice or their business to someone else in the next 20 to 30 years um, and there's going to be a, there's already not enough financial planners out there for the amount of people who need a planner which is almost everyone and the problem is going to just exacerbate and from our research we found that transgender people as a community tend to be more highly educated as well as uh, similar to women they seem to be more receptive to being more personable uh, more caring and and, and and concerned about someone's well-being and not just so worried about the bottom line and for those two reasons we think it would be great to try to get transgender people to fill those spots and I was just curious uh, you guys are you know, we're two cis gay white men, right? So we only we have our context. I'm curious, uh, Nicole, with you being a transgender person, what your thoughts on that? And then Bryn, you having done research in this community, your thoughts on that? So we'll start with Bryn first and then go to Nicole, please. I mean, I think it sounds like a great idea. I think that the more representation and diversity that we have within the field, the more people we're going to be able to serve. But 
I want to largely defer to what Nicole's going to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, that it's one of those, you, although we would like, you can see people who are supportive, it always helps to see people that are like you in those roles so that this way they know the nuance of, okay, although they may be dressed a certain way, they may prefer the pronouns of he, him, even though they may be wearing a dress, for example. Mm-hmm. It's where, where knowing that there, there are people that, that are like us, that understand our nuances, understand the different things that affect us directly, that maybe not so much have an effect on cis people or straight people, but affect us as a, as a whole, knowing that, hey, they may have gone through that themselves, can actually talk with him and feel comfortable talking to him makes a world of difference. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. Thanks. Thanks for that context. So it seems to me that we got to put more pressure on the financial services industry <laughs> than we do to transgender people. And David and I are happy to do that. <laughs> um, in the Feminist Financial Handbook, Bryn, you talk about how the LGBT community is drawn to the coasts. This is something that David and I have written about quite a bit. We're definitely attracted towards cities where they, we feel a sense of safety. Very often that is the coast and very often that's very expensive those are very expensive locations to live in. What changes, if any, in your research are you, are you seeing uh, about the LGBT community being drawn to the coast? And are there any effects in terms of changes that you're seeing with the uh, increase in the gig economy? That's a question about the gig economy. I'm going to have to look into that one. Um, but for the first part of your question, it was really interesting. I also tried to be um, inclusive of the Canadian market in this book as well. And so uh, while this coastal thing holds very true for us here in the U.S., with the exception of maybe like Illinois, because uh, the state of Illinois has some very progressive laws, at least in business. So when you're looking at LGBT entrepreneurs, um, when they're moving their businesses to places where they feel safer or they feel like they can conduct business more efficiently or effectively, um, they're moving to states and cities like that, which tend to be on the coast and then also Illinois. Um, but in Canada, though, the same doesn't hold true. It's more of where are the major metropolises. And so like in Canada, you're talking about like Toronto. Um, that's kind of middle. It's not coastal. <laughs> um, but but it's a huge Canadian metropolis right. where that culture exists. Um, and so I think that's really what it is when you get into more um, urban settings where people are m- might be more exposed to more people and different types of styles and they're more accepting. Um, I, I think that that's a big thing. That being said, in the Midwest of America, at least there are also some large cities like Nicole, I know you came from Dallas and it was it that that is a major metropolis, but it wasn't exactly. very friendly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's it all it's one of those you have there's trans people in all parts of the US and in Canada. For example, one of my one of my girlfriends, she actually lives in Coalinga, California. If you ask if you've ever heard of Coalinga, they're look at you like where? Who? What? <laughs> okay. And co- where Coalinga is actually, it's near Fresno. However, because even though it's near Fresno and it's in California, but it's a simple fact that it's a very small town, there's not a whole lot of, not a whole lot of opportunity 
Porra. So it's more, it all depends on where you're at. And even within states, although you may have, may have cities that are accepting, that are uh, progressive, there's also, it also may be one of those to where there's parts of the, the state as a whole or state politics may not be conductive, like, for example, last year in Texas, although Dallas, Austin, to a point Houston and San Antonio, although they are progressive, you have state politicians who aren't so progressive, which in turn makes things harder for the people living there. Gotcha. Yeah. Thank you for, for sharing that. It's, it's it's always interesting to get somebody's perspective who has a much different lived experience than what David and I do. And that's part of the reason why we love this podcast, because it gives us an opportunity to connect with people we might not otherwise connect with. So I absolutely appreciate that, Nicole. Brynn, I'm, I'm curious, you know, you, you've done this exhaustive research on finance and these different communities. Do you see any sort of overlapping similarities between the different groups? Do, do Does the LGBT community and do do women kind of have similar struggles or do we are we all relegated to our own unique challenges? I think that you can see a lot of the same struggles, but I think the degree to which you struggle is going to vary. Um, like I said, I am a white straight presenting cisgender woman. Like I, yes, I am a woman and yes, I face a pay gap and yes, I face certain biases at work, but I also have a whole lot of privilege along with that. And if I was a woman of color or if I was not cisgender or if I, I didn't present as straight, like all of those things would compound the difficulties that I face. And I think another really important thing to remember, too, is that while we have all of these communities and these communities may be similar or different um, challenges along the way, as individuals, we are who we are. Our identities are important parts of who we are, but we can't separate each identity from ourselves. So I, I, I think that as we start looking at these various intersections, it, it's really helpful to look at these when we're talking about systemic solutions. But I also think that the extent of suffering or oppression that an individual goes through is going to be highly variable um, and that personal experiences are very important in this conversation, too. Absolutely. Uh, you know, Bryn, I, I will say thank you. The fact that you mentioned the the comment there about having privilege. Um, this is my personal opinion on privilege. Um, I think in many ways, privilege is just like money, that money can be a tool for both good and bad. And I think that privilege can be a tool for both good and bad. And I thank you for using the privilege that you have to try to use it for good, to try to expose more of us to what it's like for women, what it's like for women of color, what it's like for women uh, who are non gender conforming or who are uh, non-heteronormative, non-cis normative. So I appreciate you doing that. I think that's one of the important things that many of us need to remember is that we all have our own struggles, but sometimes it's the struggles of others that t teach us some of the best lessons. Exactly. Thank I, you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do envision a world where everybody can be themselves and it works for everyone. <laughs> And it's only because of people who are brave like Nicole and people who are advocates and allies like Bryn that that will ever get happen. So thanks to both of you. 
to both of you, do, do you have any final thoughts or anything you want to share with our audience uh, about these particular topics that we've covered today? I'll, I'll go to uh, Bryn first. Yeah, I would really encourage people to follow Nicole. Um, <laughs> if you I, if you do buy the book, there is an entire section like flip near the back. The women that I interviewed, their stories are at the core of the book. And they are powerhouses. Um, Nicole is an amazing advocate who who keeps overcoming challenges and is just such an inspiration to me. Um, and there's, I think, between six to 17 women who contributed their story experiences and kind of some of their their personal solutions to some of these obstacles as well. So if you do anything after you buy the book, flip to that page, go find those women and follow them. You will learn so much about finances um, and also about some of those different perspectives. If you are not finding yourself in any of these stories, I think that's a good thing. You can go, like you guys were saying, you can go learn about other people's stories and just help make things more inclusive and equal and um, help everybody have a little bit more equal access. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Nicole, any final thoughts? It's the main thing I want everyone to remember, as y'all were saying, although there may be some things that we do share, that, that we may all be part of the rainbow community, for example, we all have different things that we go through. We all have there may be some nuances that may be true for me that may not be true for you. So always take the time to listen to someone else's story. Although you may, it may not affect you, it may affect them, and to them, it's a big deal. Although it may be a deal to you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. It's it's like the Bible says: just be compassionate. <laughs> so, so Bryn, where can our we listeners realize that? <laughs> exactly, uh, Bryn. Where can our listeners get a copy of your book, and where all can they find you on social media and that famous thing called the World Wide Web? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So you can find the book on Amazon. Uh, it's also on Barnes and Noble. It's also with a bunch of independent booksellers. Um, but Amazon's the number one place. And you can find me on my blog, femfrugality.com. I'm also at femfrugality on almost every social networking site like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. Hmm, smart branding. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it simple. And Nicole, if uh, you want any of our listeners to follow you, where should they find you? I can be found on Twitter at at C, as in S-E-A, Seattle, where, where I'm currently living. It'll change from time to time, for, depending on where I live. But for right now, it's Seattle. So at C on Twitter is where to find me. Cool. Very much. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, Nicole, thank you so much for sharing your story. It was super insightful, including for David and me. And Bryn, thank you for writing such a great book. I'm very impressed with it. And um, I think everyone, male or female, straight, gay, all that stuff, um, should buy it. It's, uh, it's very insightful. Even if it's not your story, it helps understand someone else's perspective. And you can increase that level of compassion that Jesus told us to be concerned about. <laughs> thank you Amen, very much. Jesus. <laughs> Wow. Thank you, Bryn, for bringing this important story to light. And thank you, especially Nicole, for sharing your story and being so vulnerable with us. No doubt this episode shed some light on how, even though the fundamentals of money are the same for all of us, our experiences, risks, and concerns are all unique. 
In that way, queer money is different than straight money, and the differences exist even beyond that. For more information, please buy Bryn's book, The Feminist Financial Handbook, on Amazon.com. We have a link in the show notes to the book for you at debtfreeguys.com forward slash 141. Finally, don't forget that the Budget Buster Bundle is coming your way to solve all your budgeting problems starting January 17th. If you want to be able to tell your family next Thanksgiving that you've been rocking a budget for months and achieving all of your financial goals, the Budget Buster Bundle is for you. Get more information at debtfreeguys.com forward slash budget buster. We'll talk with you next week.